Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cochilillo, and today we have a special guest, PMH Atwater. How are you this morning? Hi, I'm just doing great. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on today. Oh, it's just wonderful to be here. Um, so you are like the world-renowned expert on near-death experience. It uh, looks like you've written like over 20 books on the subject and have spoken in front of the United Nations a couple times. Uh, so this is going to be a very interesting um, interview. This is something uh, that I myself am really interested in too. Um, so you've had three near-death experiences yourself, is that correct? In three months. Wow. <laughs> three in three months. I, I, I go back there and I call it the heavenly sledgehammer effect. Yeah, <laughs> that <laughs> tell you how stubborn I was before. I don't know what will. <laughs> yep, got hit three times. Wow. Um, so what happened and what was it like? Um, it was all because of a rape. Oh, no. And um, the miscarriage and... Um, uh, you know, all of the complications because of the miscarriage. Death number one was January 2, 1977. Um, death number, or that's death number one. Death number two was um, January 4, two days later. And then death number uh, three was March 29. And later that fall, I had three major relapses one of which was adrenal failure. So, <laughs> you know, 1977 wasn't really my year. <laughs> I had to relearn how to crawl, how to stand, how to walk, how to tell the difference between left and right, um, how to rebuild all of my belief systems. Um, I began all over again, Gary, uh, from, from, you know, from crawling. Wow. I had to relearn everything. So it was like a total reset. It was a total reset. And, um, you know, you have this, this knowledge, this knowing, this placement of where you were and, and, and what you experienced. But that's not helpful <laughs> when you can't hardly walk, when you don't know what food is, when you don't know what, um, you know, I, I didn't even understand what it was like to open up a can um, and then pull out a pan and tip the can of food into the pan, put the can down and then put it on a burner. That had absolutely no meaning for me. And I would look at that uh, food after it had been heated and I would wonder, why did I do this? What is this for? So when I say I had to begin again at ground level, I'm not kidding. Mm -hmm. What um, pushed me, what 
gave me the 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 urge and the, and the draw and the need to get get well so to speak to become like a human being again um was certainly what i had experienced but especially my third one in my third one um there was a voice that spoke to me later on in that third experience. And it, it, it wasn't like guides and guardians and angels and archangels and, you know, all this stuff that you hear. Um, it, it wasn't like that at all. Uh, I was familiar with that kind of thing um, from long before I ever died. But, but no, this, this, was, this, was, this was very, very different. It's like that voice was so big. It was bigger than the universe. And that voice spoke to me and said, and, and, and I, I quote, test revelation. You are to do the research, one book for each death. It did not show me how to do the job, but it did... Uh, um, it, it did specify more about the books. Uh, book number one was not named. Book two was Future Memory. It's out there. Everybody get it. Um, uh, you're going to be very surprised if you get the book Future Memory. And the third one was a manual for developing humans. That is... Um, written and portrayed in fifth dimensional... Uh, it has a fifth dimensional layout. So you get everything all at once, conscious, subconscious, superconscious, uh, all at once, all through the book. So that's going to be an adventure for everybody. It was an adventure for me to write. Um, so I was just kind of turned loose. I mean, that's it. That's all I had. Wow. But I was a cop's kid. I was raised in a police station. Um, so I knew police investigative techniques. I knew how to do that kind of research. And uh, a good cop, for instance, if there's an accident, you've got three witnesses, the cop will go up and say, did you see anything? You never, 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 never use a word before the witness or the individual does. If you do, if you do that biases your work. So um, that's why I did my research. I never used a word before the individual did. Um, so my work is all groundwork. It's, it's, <laughs> some people call me the, the gumshoe of near death. <laughs> Because I'm out there, you know, in people's homes, and I'm with the people, and I'm talking to everybody and, and anybody, the neighbors, the healthcare givers, the experiencer, you know, what, you know, what really happened, and tell me about it. It's one of the, you know, I love the scientific protocol, but it's one of the um, challenges I have with a scientific protocol, and that is, it's all biased. They begin with words, they begin with patterns, and you can't do that, um, at least to my notion, um, until you invite the experiencer in. 
and have the experiencer tell their story their way. And then you can use words if you want to, but you know, the initial has to be the experiencers. So <laughs> my research base now is nearly 5,000 adults and children. I've been doing this for, gee, what? I started in 1978. Never heard of Raymond Moody, never heard of his book. I met uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross at O'Hare Airport. Um, she, she had, you know, about an hour or so waiting on her plane. So we sat down on a bench and, and you know, <laughs> talked like a couple of schoolgirls. And I told her all about my experiences. She uh, identified me as a near-death survivor. She never used the word experiencer. And then she told me about the pattern. And, that, you know, that's all I had to go on. That's, um, you know, I, walk, I walked out the door um, in essence. I lived then in Boise, Idaho. So I sold my home, walked out the door, crossed the United States and began my work in Falls Church, Virginia. And I've been doing it ever since. I've written um, 19 books so far. I'm on, well, 18. I've, I've, begun, I've begun my ninth, 19th one now. I'm working on a book now. So um, you're talking to kind of like a scrappy Westerner <laughs> who went out and did her own thing. Uh, so <laughs> here I am. That's great. Um, so when you had your near death experiences, uh, what did you like, like, what was it like? What did you experience? Did you see relatives, deceased relatives, or was it peaceful? Well, I'll just give you kind of, kind of a, a brief outline, uh, rather than going in depth. Um, my first one, January 2, um, that was, oh, how do I explain it? Um, I, 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 I went to the toilet. Um, there was a lot of pain and I miscarried in the, in the toilet, uh, rose up high, um, along the ceiling and I kept bumping into the light bulb. I can honestly say my light was a light bulb. It was on. And I kept bumping into it like a moth drawn to a flame. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, I, I couldn't understand the difference in um, dimension. Because I, I was up here, you know, bumping into that light bulb and looking down. There's the toilet. There's the bathtub. There's my bloody body. Uh, <laughs> Gary, Gary, you don't become someone you are not. And I tend to be um, lady clean. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I can see a dirt ball at 50 paces. So I'm looking down at that bloody body and there, there's no way <laughs> I'm going to own up to that thing as mine. <laughs> not going to happen. Not going to happen. <laughs> So I'm up there bouncing around on the sit on the ceiling, trying to figure out what happened, and um, you know I'm not owning up to that thing on the floor. I mean that couldn't possibly be me. And then eventually that was me, 
Uh, I was pulled back into my body. And it, it, it is interesting to me how I was pulled back. It, it's sort of like an, an overstretched rubber band. And suddenly that rubber band went twang and I'm slapped back into the body, entering through uh, the soft spot in our, in our skull. And, uh, you know, uh, um, like the soft, uh, soft spot, um, like when we were with baby, as a baby, uh-huh. And and being uh, pulled back in all the way back to my toes, and having to shrink to fit back into the body, so it's very obvious to me that we're much larger out of our body than we are in our body. Um, in my body, I had to shrink to fit back in, and you know it's back to the pain and back to the mess. So you know. <laughs> I did what was typical for, for me. I, I cleaned up my mess as best I could. Um, never occurred to me to go to, you know, make my way to a telephone and call for help. You know, I'm a good Westerner. West, Westerners take care of themselves. If they've got a problem, they take care of it. And the idea of, um, of um, you know, going to somebody else or calling for help is just absolutely unknown. You don't do that. So I cleaned up my mess and, and you know, went back to bed, propped up my legs as high as I could get them, and went to sleep. I'm a person that can sleep anytime, anywhere, no problem. Um, the next morning, my oldest daughter, uh, my two daughters were still at home. My son was gone. Um, um, sort of jiggled me and said, you know, do you, um, do you want to go to work? I, how are you feeling? And all I could say was I wasn't feeling too well. And so she called in, you know, to the office and then both girls went to school. Natalie was in high school. Uh, Polly was in the sixth grade and they were gone. And it was after they were gone um, that I became aware of um, this growing pain inside my right thigh. Um, it was uh, just how do you how do you explain that kind of pain? You know, it, it's it, it hurt so much that if I'd had a knife, I'd have cut my leg off. It was that bad. That's pretty um, bad. Yeah. And then and then only did it get through my thick head. I needed help. And and getting to the phone in those days, you know, you didn't have phones like you have now. We had one phone in the whole house. It was in the kitchen. It was a wall phone. So getting to that phone um involved crawling because i couldn't walk anymore crawling and and you know the determination to make it uh, i made it as far as the dining room (laughs) and you know if i'd have gone another three feet i could have pulled that wall phone down but um i didn't make it that far and among the things that happened to me then, I left my body again. Um, 
discovering thought forms, what thought forms are, how they work, um, being a able to, uh, oh, one of the things that, that happened to me is, is I went into the void. I, get, I called it the void. I didn't know what else to call it. Uh-huh. There was this, it was black. I, I, everything's black, 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 black. Uh, the deepest black I'd ever seen. But there was something about this blackness. You know, it wasn't a scary black uh, darkness. Well, it wasn't darkness. It was blackness. And and there was nothing scary about it. it but but I noticed, you know, there was the presence in this blackness, even though there's nothing there. Of everything that had ever existed, existed now and ever would exist, every sound, every motion, everything about what we call life, again, that had, had, that had ever been created, was functioning now or ever would um, come forth. It's it, it just everything was there, yeah. but there was nothing there. And then I became aware, that, um, and I'm going to talk about this even more in the book I'm writing now. There was something there, and it was the presence of what I call shimmer. You know, it, 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 if you can think back to any time you've done a jello mold and and you've you've taken that jello when when it was set and you flipped it upside down on a plate you know and you're going to serve it for dinner and and you take your finger your index finger and and and, and just 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 you you, you you're going to touch it and you're just about there. You're just about to touch it, and there's there's a there's a presence. There's a shimmer. You haven't touched it yet, but there's this shimmer. Right. And it's not really a movement. It's just a shimmer. And mm-hmm. and the void is absolutely full of shimmer. Right. It's similar to an experience that I had during an epileptic seizure, sounds like. It's something like that? Yeah. Well, I was out for, I had a seizure and I was out for about 20 minutes. And um, at first it was just darkness, but then all around me, it was like I was inside like a vortex of color and sound. And I wasn't afraid or, or anything like that. If anything, I, like during the experience, I was completely fascinated. But I was like, "Oh wow, this is really cool!" And um, and then before I know it, I, I I heard somebody in the distance yelling, "Come back to me, Gary! Come back to me!" And it, it was my wife. And uh, and I opened my eyes. And I was, by then, I was already in the ambulance. Wow! So you you've kind of had something like this yourself. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if. I don't. I wasn't dead, but maybe I was brain dead. I don't know. But, but it was a really strange 
experience and it definitely changed something inside of me. Yeah. I can't put it into words, but <laughs> I can understand happens. that. I can feel that. Uh, you know, it, it, like you. Yeah. How, how, how do you put that into words? W what words are there? It's like in that blackness, in that shimmer, there is everything. Everything is there and everything that's going to be, everything, um, all of our futures, our nows, our past, everything is there, but there's absolutely nothing there. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And, and also, uh, when you mentioned like the out-of-body experience when you're looking down on yourself, um, when I was younger, my dad had a, well, I wasn't that much younger. My, my dad had like a really bad heart attack once. And, and he was dead for, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes before he resuscitated him. And, you know, I, I'm sort of like the kooky son. I asked him, I said, Dad, what was it like being dead? And he, he talked, he, he is, well, always asked me that, but, you know, it was, I was floating above my body watching them trying to bring me back. Aha. Uh -huh. So he had a near-death experience. He oh, did. Oh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so you got to hear about those quite young. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, um, that was an incredible experience. It certainly changed, changed um, how I viewed life and how I viewed myself and how I felt. But for me, um, you know, I, I went through a lot of rigorous um, exercises and everything I could do to bring back my right thigh. Um, turned out there was a, a very large, huge blood clot there that I had burst because I didn't know what it was. So I was pounding on it. Worst thing I could have done and made everything uh, uh, very much worse. So I went through a long period of, of being crippled, of being, uh, you know, having to relearn everything. And, um, you know, it, it, the experience was wonderful. It was great, but it wasn't great. I mean, it was absolutely wonderful, but, you know, the life I had now wasn't wonderful. <laughs> Uh, so how do you pull the two together? And, and I was having a lot of problem doing that. Um, and then, uh, and then I had uh, a third experience and that experience was different. All of my experiences were different. They were not the same. Uh, in the third one, I, I left the planet. I absolutely left the planet. And I could see Earth getting smaller and smaller and smaller as I was zooming out into space. And I came to this, um, I call it a lip of light. It was, it, was like, it, was like, it was like in the universe, there is a lip of light that will open if you get near it. And I got near it and it opened and I was sucked in. And, and in that place, I saw what I'd seen 
um, in my near-death experience, well, I, I mean, I saw it. That was my near-death experience. I saw it. And it, it was like giant, I call them cyclones, inverted over each other in an hourglass shape. And out of the middle, where, this, where the tips should have touched but didn't, came this incredible pulsating power. I, I mean, I hate, I, I hesitate to even call it power because I don't know what it was. Right. Uh, and it just kept coming and coming and coming. And, and um, my, my son uh, <clears throat> was home by then. And he was, my, my son is a great big Taurus. If you know anything about the sign, astrological sign of Taurus. Uh, my, uh, my son has like, I think it's four planets in Taurus <laughs> in, in the 10th house. I mean, is he ever a Taurus? A great big guy. So he's out, out at the um, Black Angus bar tossing a few with friends. And he told me about this a year later. He said... Um, he suddenly slammed down his mug and, and faced his friends and said, my mother's in trouble. I have to go home and help my mother. And he jumped up that bar stool, ran out to the car. It was my car, drove home and, and found my body. And uh, yeah. Um, you have to understand how we raise our children to understand his response. When he found my body, he did not go to the telephone. Instead, he went within himself and asked, what shall I do? And the voice within him said, talk. It doesn't matter what you say, just keep talking. And that's what he did. We know now later that had he gone to the phone and called for help, um, I would have not uh, made it. I would have died. So he did the absolutely perfect thing for him to do. He went within, got the guidance, and then talked. And it was his voice that I heard and, and followed his voice back. So uh, that was, um, that was an, uh, you know, that, that was just, wow. It was just, wow. Um, I can relate. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, whoa, yeah. And, and and what the coup de gras, if you will, happened a few weeks later. Um, my friends were very concerned that uh, I really wasn't healing like I ought to heal. By then, I had learned that no, you don't go to an MD if you want a real healing. You go to um, well, I went to a naturopath. But you go to a natural practitioner of some kind um, that is good, you know, has uh, uh, you know has, has good credentials. I went to a naturopath, 
and it was um, him, Dr. William Reimer, um, who enabled me through lots of exercise, lots of um, different techniques to begin to come back, but I didn't come back far enough to satisfy him or my friends. And, and here, here's the, the little coincidence. Yeah, <laughs> our synchronicity strikes again. Um, by then it was around, oh, let's say November 3, November 4 of 1977. And um, in Seattle, Washington, they were having the Mind Miraculous Symposium in Seattle Center, and it was a big one, you know, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was there, Dr. Boo Joy, on and on and on, and um, they, my friends and doctor felt that what I needed was a change of scenery, so they trucked me up in a van, you know, can you imagine a doctor getting up at five in the morning to give you a shot, a bunch of medicine, just so you can, you know, can, you can go to a conference, well, <laughs> he did, and um, I made it, and, and the first speaker paid for my trip, and that speaker was Dr. William Tiller, a physicist at Stanton, and I can't tell you, the name of his talk was The Eternal Now. Can't tell you a thing the man said until the end of his talk, and he made the statement, that it is his belief that everything happens at the same time in the same place that there is simultaneity. That all is simultaneous. And mm -hmm. so he flashed up on this giant screen his chart of what his math, his physics, had led him to believe is real, it, 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 it is the eternal now, what it looks like. And he flashed up on that screen exactly what I had seen exactly in my third near-death experience. And I, I jumped up off that chair and, and, and I, I, and I, went into the hall and, and just collapsed under uh, you know, wall light and, and just curled up in the fetal position and rocking and crying and, um, and saying out loud, I'm not crazy, I'm not crazy. He saw it too. He knows the truth. I'm not crazy, I'm not crazy, I'm not crazy. And from that moment on, I got well. I mean, poof! I mean, it was all over. That's intense. I, I was able to come back and um, th then live my life. And it was after that, the year later, that I went to, um, I went to visit my aunt and uncle in, in Chicago. And while I was there um, at O'Hare Airport, I saw Elizabeth, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, walked up, introduced myself. And uh, she was, you know, way, way, way late. Her plane was to go to Germany. So we sat down on a bench and 
visited like a couple of school girls and I told her about all three of my experiences. She called me a near-death survivor. She never used the word experiencer. And then she told me about the now famous pattern. She didn't mention anybody else. She just gave me the pattern. And I felt like I was being instructed, like, this is what I need to know, because this is my research, to seek out people who have, um, who have undergone the near-death phenomenon and find out more about it, and especially how people were responded to it and how... Um, it changes their life, if it did, uh, to seek out the fuller dynamics of the phenomenon. And and I knew, you know, um, I had Elizabeth words, and I had my background in police work. And that's when, gee, it was just like, what was it, a couple of months later, I sold my house. Um, the children went off doing their own thing. My youngest chose to live with her father. She left. My son joined the Coast Guard. My oldest daughter um, decided to live her own life, her own way. And I, you know, I walked out on, on, on my life. I did. I walked out on Idaho, the West, went first to watch the sun set silver over the Pacific, um, meandered across the United States, wound up in Falls Church, Virginia, watching the sun rise golden over the Atlantic. And that's where I began my work. Um, No, I had no help. No, I had no money. I had only, uh, you know, what jobs I could get. Um, And it just happened. People learned about me. I gave talks for a while. People kept coming to me and coming to me and um, met a, a particular professor uh, that taught in the Shenandoah Valley. And he made certain um, that I had a lot of meetings and I had a lot of talks that I could give. And uh, that started it. And then I moved to um, Roanoke, Virginia. And that is where I met and married my husband. Um, And that's where I began, because uh, the job I had, I flew all over everywhere. So I found experiencers absolutely everywhere. To to show you how bizarre it was. I mean, it was bizarre, Gary. (laughs) Um, uh, I was working a job in, in... yeah, you know, um, um, I worked for an interconnect company um, before Ma Bell. So, so I'm dealing with telephones and switching systems and computers and that kind of thing uh, at the beginning of when this all happened. And uh, to, to show you just how, how absolutely bizarre this was, I, I was sent to do a job in Macon, Georgia. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're talking to Idaho, Idaho, me, and I'm in Macon, Georgia. <laughs> that was an experience in itself. And I, I had a coffee break. So I walked over to this truck stop 
And, uh, <laughs> you know, I was just reading a paperback. And I was sitting out in the middle of the floor. There was hardly anybody there, a table, chairs. And this guy walks up to me. <laughs> I swear he was wide as wide as, as he was tall. Big guy. He walked up to me and says, lady, anybody sitting in that chair with you? And I said, no, no. May I sit there? I thought for a minute. I thought, well, sure. Okay. You can sit there. And so, so this guy sits down, puts his arms on the table, looks at me straight in the eye. And he says, I want you to know I still drink and I still chase women. <laughs> but I want you to know all about the time I died. And he goes through this long spiel about his death and what it was like for him afterward. And then he got up and left. <laughs> That's so strange. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That kind of thing happened to me hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. No matter where I was in uh, the central states, the eastern states, didn't matter that kind of thing happened over and over and over again. And I finally decided <laughs> that I must be wearing some kind of, uh, uh, of sign on my back <laughs> that tells everybody, you know, tell me all about your near-death experience. <laughs> because, you know, I'd go up in an elevator and people, would, uh, you know, tell me about their near-death experience. I'd get in a taxi cab. I mean, it didn't matter. You know, this one time in, in Washington, D.C., I was, I was, you know, getting in this cab. And um, the driver, I think he must have been from Haiti or somewhere. And had the darkest skin I'd ever seen in my life. I'd just never seen that a man that dark before. He was a wonderful guy. Um, he looked at me. And he says, oh, it, it, he pointed at me, looked at me, and he pointed at me and says, oh, you died too. Now I can tell you all about when I died. <laughs> he didn't know me. I didn't know him. And this, <laughs> I mean, year after year, I mean, this is what, later on, many years later, I did buy some ads. I did write some articles and then invited people to get a hold of me after, you know, at, at the end of the article. So I did do some of that. But clearly about 60, 60 65% of, of all of my research came from that strange way of people just coming up to me and telling me their story. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's amazing. It's like uh, something connected everybody with the same experience. They saw something in me I didn't know was there. Yeah. I mean, here I am in a taxi cab, and I'm in, I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I'm driving to, the, the, the cab driver is driving me to a job. 
and I'm a very curious person. So I usually talk to the cabbies, the drivers, and I, I want to know about the city, the tax base, the various colleges, universities. I want to know all about the people there. And <laughs> this guy got tired of my questions. <laughs> and he finally said to me, lady, I'm from Egypt. <laughs> the only reason that I'm here is to take classes at such and such a college. But he says, I can tell you all about the time I died. <laughs> so he tells me, <laughs> this guy from Egypt who's driving a taxi cab tells me all about his near-death experience. So, you know, it was that bizarre, Gary. And it was day after day, week after week, month after month, year after. Um, you know, what can I say? I, and, I did my job. And what have you learned through all this? Like, oh, what it, haven't I learned? Exactly. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, that's a silly question, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> what haven't I learned? Absolutely. Um, I guess um, among what I can offer is this. That we are all more powerful, more special, and more wonderful than we can ever imagine. That we all have the power to heal. We all have the ability to um, learn and grow and become more than we are. Um, I, le I learned that we human beings are just incredible critters. Hmm. And that this world we're living in is part of us. It's absolutely part of us. It's like, it's like everything is part of us and we're part of everything else. Um, we can go through all kinds of ideas and visions and dreams about the different levels on the planet and the different levels to consciousness. And, you know, this means this and that means that. And met St. Germain and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and you're guided and, and, and led and your guidance helps you this way or that way. And that you're, you're psychic and you can see and read all of this. And all that's true. But there's a lot more beyond all of that. There's more beyond that? <laughs> yeah. And the longer I live, the more convinced I am that we don't even have a clue as to how, uh, how wondrous it all is, you know? I mean, certainly it's true, and, and if we're going to talk about after effects of near-death experiences, it is true. 
that um, we have physiological after effects, we have psychological after effects. Most people are just familiar with the psychological ones, like, you know, you become back more loving um, and um, more psychic and 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 more creative and and more informed and that you wanna you really want to get um involved in whatever you can do to help people and help the world and and you want to get involved to whatever extent you can in uh helping the world be a better place right and, so, and, and physiologically, it is true that it changes brain structure and brain function. I'm talking physiological here. It changes brain structure and brain function. It changes the nervous system. It changes the uh, digestive system. It changes skin sensitivity. So we're talking about um, definable changes in the physiological structure of the human body. Uh, we're, uh, we're defining and saying that many have electrical sensitivity. Um, many begin, be, begin abstracting. Uh, many uh, develop synesthesia. Stenesth Anesthesia is multiple sensing. It's part of the limbic system in the brain. Um, so, for instance, um, the average experiencer will not buy a picture uh, for what it looks like. They will buy a picture for how it sounds. So we're talking about multiple sensing. Um, let me give you a, a quick demo, uh, a quick example here okay. of that. Um, I was born with stenesthesia. No, I was not a child experiencer. I was simply born with it. So I was the only child in the first grade where I, where I was in Twin Falls, Idaho, who could smell color, see music and hear numbers. Now, back then, everybody, especially my teacher and the principal, thought I was lying. Um, and my punishment for being a liar um, was to have to sit on a tall stool in front of the class wearing a tall conical hat that said dunce on it. Um, and, I, and I was punished in that way over and over and over again. My mother was called into the school, I think, two or three times by the principal because he wanted me kicked out of school. Thank God my mother held on and, and kept me in school. But at the end of school, I was so angry. I was just so angry because I always told the truth and I was never believed. And I was so angry that I decided that all adults were stupid and I was never going to be an adult when I grew up. <laughs> uh, and that really sort of might have been a, a very well, wonderful thing because I became, I became absolutely dedicated to research at that point because I, I didn't believe anybody. 
um, I did my first double blind study at, at, with a control group at the age of five. So, uh, so I was always a very curious kid, wanted to, wanted to know why, why, why. And after the first grade, it became absolutely necessary for my well, well-being and for my good that somehow, some way, I make sense of this incredible world we live in. And I, I literally tore everything apart. Um, and so I spent my grade school years and uh, even junior high, which you now call middle school, uh, just dissecting everything. Got myself in a lot of trouble. But um, I, w I wouldn't quit. I wouldn't quit. Even into high school, I wouldn't quit. Um, because what people told me wasn't true or part of it wasn't true. And um, I would study people to see how they walk. Okay. That's how they walk here. I would, I would study um, clothes and what people wore. Why are they wearing that? Um, and colors and everything. I, mean, I was just dissecting everything. So you can say, uh, looking back, that I, maybe I was prepared for this kind of, <laughs> of research by birth. Yeah. I was just born different. And uh, so I grew up being a very different kind of person. And um, after my death, uh, I took on the labs and became uh, a full-time researcher. And, and it, you, you've got to be fair, at least know that what has propelled me has been that voice. Absolutely that voice. Um, doing the work I have done to the extent I have done in the way I have done it. There is nobody else on this planet who has done the work I have done. There isn't anybody. There's some people that came kind of close, but nobody has dissected uh, what I saw as I did. There just isn't anybody. And, and what always kept me going was that voice, always that voice. Um, because I knew I was doing what I was told to do. I was doing my job. Um, so when I was attacked so many times by, you know, the researchers and scientists and doctors, and I mean, hey, that went on for years and years and years. Shush. Um, I always was that voice and, and, you know, I'm doing my job and I kept doing my job. I was torn to pieces, but I kept doing my job. And because I did, Pim Van Lommel in Holland uh, picked up my work, some of my work. And in his incredible study, it was done in the Netherlands. I think it was like 30 hospitals or something. Um, it was written up in Lancet Magazine, Lancet Journal, which is the biggest you can get on this planet. 
And um, my name is in there. I mean, he took some of my work and, and used it. And, um, and, and that became part of his, his work. And he was able to prove I was right. So I'm in Lancet Medical Journal, you know, yay. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I won an Oscar. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I appeared in uh, December 15, I think it was 2001. So I, t- I, told, uh, I told everybody that year I won an Oscar for Christmas. And, you know, I, 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 I've got to say right now that, that uh, my latest book, um, The Forever Angels, Near-Death Experiences in Childhood and Their Lifelong Impact, please, everybody, get that book and read that book. I did, I did what nobody else has done. Nobody. I concentrated on near-death experiences between birth and the age of five. Um, and I found out that that, that marker uh, holds true as a challenge to what we think we know about the near-death experiences because kids that long who had no before do not experience the near-death experience as any other age group. So when we're talking about the near-death experience, if you really want to know about the near-death experience, you've got to talk to the little ones. And I, and I did something else in that book because I originally did the research on children in the 90s. And that book is The New Children and Near-Death Experiences. Uh, and then my age group uh, was between birth and the age of 15 years, but the teens and tweens, you know, I, I didn't get hardly any of them. Um, most of them started about the age of seven on down. Um, so I was able to take that research that I did with the little ones um, and use it with the current one. Now, uh, with these little ones, uh, the youngest I actually worked with was four years old. And then it went up to maybe early 20s, maybe early 30s. So, so these are people looking forward in their life. Right. This last one that I did a few years ago, just a few years ago, I went after that group, you know, had it between birth and the age of five who are now in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. So I asked them to look back, you, you know, the first group looking forward. This group, I'm asking them to go back. And they have to be able to verify, have you had a, a near-death experience in those ages? And believe it or not, some could. And, and I said to, them, said to them, did having a near-death experience that young make any difference in your life. So basically I was asking for an essay and I was absolutely thunderstruck by what I got. And it's gonna, it's just gonna 
blow the whole thing wide open because not only do they have, you know, the same physiological and psychological after effects, but those after effects increase with time. So we're talking about people who grow up in a very, very different way than any other child, period, end of story. They're totally different. Uh, um, let me just quickly go through some of those differences. Um, uh, in other words, there's no contrast for these kids. Some of them have a sense of reincarnation, that is to say, having lived a life before, but very, very few. They come in knowing that they're part of the life continuum. They come in still in the continuum. So they're looking at... Um, what we call life as being that stream that sometimes you, you know, sometimes it has a little dip in it. That's called a life. Then you come back to, to the continuum, then a little dip and you come back to the continuum, but you're part of that continuum. You're not who or what you lived before. You are part of that continuum. So, they're very curious about what we call life, jobs, uh, what you do in life, all this kind of stuff. Uh, they want to learn that. Uh, in my book, there's a whole chapter on historical cases. It's amazing how many of them get into science, how many of them get into, into history, uh, making things, identifying things. Um, with this group, uh, when I'm looking at, at uh, all of them, so doesn't matter the age of the child, 90% do not bond with their parents. That doesn't mean they don't want them. They just don't bond with them. Um, they, they look at life extremely different. Um, uh, let me go on here with some of these differences is that absolutely going to shock you. And, um, and, and I'm going to say 74%. Okay. Remember that 74%. 74% of, of the, uh, of, of these children after they grew became very successful. Some of them became millionaires. I mean, very, very successful. That's 74%. That's a big number. And um, uh, um, so, so the total group I'm working here with is 397 people. So this is a major study. 74% become very successful in life. That same 74%. Now, you know, I ask you to remember the 74%. Mm -hmm. Become either suicide prone 
or um, are often, often deal with suicide ideation. That is to say, PTSD versus NDEs. This is what we don't talk about in the near-death family. The researchers, the various other people, they don't talk about it. They don't admit it. Even with our adult experiencers, many of them um, are, yeah, uh, deal with suicide ideation, not that many. In my research base, about 5%, not that many. But the children do. Uh, it, take, it takes the average adult seven to 10 years to integrate their experience. It takes the average child 20 to 40 years because children do not integrate, they compensate. So it's a whole different, different animal, if you will, uh, and how they handle that. Uh, uh, let me just quote some of this research here. Um, in, uh, in my first study, well, yeah, I've already done that. Yeah. Um, when, we're, when we're looking at all these cases, so that's 397 cases, 34% were positive about having their near-death experience. 61% were negative. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's all about home. Um, we, we don't, we, you know, we don't capture this. We don't recognize this. We, we, we don't, uh, we're not open to this. That, that, that for a child, when they think about something like, you know, near-death experiences, to them, when they were in this love-filled world, just wonderful, beautiful world, they were not breathing. Now that they're breathing, they're no longer in that beautiful, love-filled world. So the average child, for them, the little light bulb experience is, aha! The way to get back to that wonderful, beautiful, loving world is to stop my breathing. Mm -hmm. They don't think in terms of that's bad or that will upset people or that might hurt their family. No, that's not in their mind at all. Their mind is, I want to get back to where I was before. So um, it's very innocent. I just want to get back. It's not a matter of destroying anything. I just want to go back to that love. And um, in my first book on this, um, The New Children and Near-Death Experiences, I have a very large resource section in the back. And one of the things I recommend that in that book, and I recommend always, always, always everywhere, is teach child experiencers visualization. Mm -hmm. 
That's the most powerful. Do. Teach them that in visualization, they can go back there. Stay for a little while and then come back to their bodies. They don't want to stay there. Just be there for a little while and come back to their bodies because this is where they are now and they have jobs to do here. But they can go back every once in a while. And by doing that, it cuts um, that longing oh, ever so much. Uh, they they don't have that longing that that desire um, to kill themselves or, or to go to, you know the suicide thing. Uh-huh. Rather, they can use visualization. So, you know, once we open this door uh, to the little bitty ones, then we're finding out all kinds of stuff. You know that we didn't ever think of before wow, so it really makes it easier for them to cope with that is that like maybe a, like a desire it's like almost want to like return home because like when you yeah. had that experience as a child and it's like well you know this life is really hard i just want to go back home yeah, absolutely 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 um and it's a big deal it's not a little deal it's a big deal um, so I really encourage everybody, buy the book or get the book, The Forever Angels, if you can just remember that. The Forever Angels, near that experiences in childhood and their lifelong impact. Uh, you're going to be amazed at what's in that book. It's just going <laughs> to, it's going to surprise you. It's going to shock you. Um, it's going to turn you uh, it's going to turn you around and how you look at near-death experiences. It's really interesting to be able to go back. Plus, you know, a, a, a child's perception of it is completely untainted with, you know, all the programming that we experience as adults too. So it's probably a more pure type of uh, recall. Oh, absolutely. Uh, with, with children, they, they, uh, many of them see three lights. They don't see one, they see three. Um, they describe them as, um, there's this one light that is so piercing and so strong and so big, and it doesn't have any particular color. It's just piercing in its strength. And then there's this other light, this black light or dark light, often, often is described as having uh, purple tinges in it. And then there's this white light or bright light. And sometimes it has silver or gold in it. But, but, but there's this, there's obviously for a child, three lights. Um, and so I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm with kids a lot. And I said, well, describe these lights to me. What, what do you think they are? They said, well, the white light that people talk so much about, that's father light. The black light, that's mother light. And that piercing strong light, that's God's light. 
and Father Light and Mother Light, they come from God's light. So when we're talking about near-death experiences as a white light experience, no, it's not. It, it is certainly a light experience. It's an incredibly bright light. But we can't say it's white or black or any other specific color. What it is is it's powerful. It's powerful. And when the kids describe it, it just blow your mind. It, that black light is, is so healing and so wonderfully comfortable to children. Oh, they love that black light. Um, in, in, in one of the uh, books that I've written, um, the big book of near-death experiences, that's now owned by the International Association of Near-Death Studies. Uh, we call it IANS. And, you know, just going by the initials, IANS. Uh, I gave them my copyright so that they would own the book, not me. So whenever you buy the big book, the uh, 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 the uh, um, the royalties go to IANS. They don't go to me. Mm -hmm. but that's the only encyclopedia ever written on the near-death experience in every aspect of it. Um, suicide, you know, everything is in that book. And in that book uh, is um, a drawing of a man who was in the hospital and um, that um, um, he was to have surgery the next morning, very, very serious surgery. And during the night, sometime during the night, yeah, evening or night, he was visited by the black light. It came to him, not a white light, black light, and engulfed him. And he was, you know, total peace in that light. The next morning, when they x-rayed him again, they found that the growth they had to cut out was completely gone. It had disappeared. That black light just cured him. And you hear this again and again and again. There's something about that light and it also has to do with intelligence. Uh, I haven't talked at all about intelligence with kids who have these kind of experiences. Almost all of them um, uh, have, have greater intelligence because of it. You know, it directly affects brain and brain structure. And and I think it's 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 just giving them a boost or a big jump into higher states of mind, because um, the the average child experiencer, um, very very young, are are abstracting by the first grade. Now, most adults. You don't begin to abstract till really college or, you know, uh, the higher grades, maybe into college. 
these are kids that are abstracting in the first grade. Let me give you an example. There's this, this one boy in my research base. Um, it was in the first grade. I don't know. Yeah, he's like six, barely six. He drowned halfway through. And when he came back to school, um, yeah, what are they reading in the first grade? You know, see, spot, run, Dick and Jane. <laughs> this little kid <laughs> goes yeah. up to the teacher and, 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 um, and he's now reading Greek mythology and fully understands it. And he goes up to his teacher and he says, why was the book Robinson Crusoe ever written? It's like, twang! You know, what is this, the teacher going to do? Um, so she had to, you know, toss him off into a um, genius level or, you know, higher than an intelligence level class because it's, you know, obviously he'd outgrown his class he was in. And, and we find this often that um, these kids are abstract. I mean, that's abstraction. Um, and most of them are abstracting by the first grade. Now, Gary, what school in the United States of America is prepared for first graders who can abstract? Done. <laughs> <Ta -da! laughs> so you know they go through these kinds of things. The intelligence level is just off the charts. Um, um, with my uh, just overall, when these kids are old enough to take the standard IQ test. 48% percent between uh, birth and the age of seven, 48% were getting scores of 150 to 160. The average teacher will say, say well, genius starts about 132, 136. These are kids. You know, uh, 150, 160. Now, if they had a near-death experience uh, before age six, so we're, we're getting into the five-year-olds, that jumps, uh, jumps um, the IQ score up to around 81%. Look at that. That's huge. Now, if they had their experience between birth and the age of 15, 16 months, so we're talking about babies. Okay. If they had it then, their scores are in the 200s, especially wow. if they had a black light experience instead of a white light experience. 
there's something about the black light that heals, that comforts, and jumps your intelligence. It's just, it's just, it just blows you away, Gary. It just blows, the numbers blow you away. You know, you look at this stuff and you say, oh my God, dear God <laughs> in heaven, what's going on here? It's amazing and, that you put all this together. Oh, hey, I'm, <laughs> I'm excited, <Okay>. you know. <laughs> I'm going for it. And I and I did. I just I just investigated to the very nth degree. And you're going to get all that in the book. You're just going to get blown away with what's in there. Um, what's happened since the books come out? And it's been out about a year. Well, not a year yet. It came came out in December. Um, I had a phone call. Oh, maybe about a month ago from a police officer in New York City. So we're talking about a hardened cop. He's crying. He got a hold of the book, read it. And he said, no one has ever been able to tell me why I'm so different from anybody else. Now I know. He's one of them. It just, ah, oh, he's just crying and crying. Wow. Another woman sent me a drawing of her conception. Uh-huh. She drew a picture of it and, and showed it to her parents. She was absolutely right, much to their embarrassment. She was there at her conception and saw the whole thing. Uh, one of the um, cases that I covered was a particular uh, girl who had her near-death experience inside her inside her mother's womb. Listen to this: inside her mother's womb as she was trying to be born while her mother was uh, attempting suicide. So, I mean, I, mean whoo, uh, I had cases that just will flip your wigs. Yeah. Um, one right after another. Um, but, you know, a lot of um, those that you know, maybe aren't quite that um, eye-catching, but all of them meaningful in that these children in growing up had to figure out how to grow up. Because most of these kids know more than their parents do. They know more than the teacher does. School for them is boring. They, they don't know how to, how to go out on dates. They don't understand the dating process. Let me give you an example of this one. Um, uh, girl said, well, 
why should I go out on this date? I know it's going to happen before, before it does. <laughs> you know, I mean, why should I bother? So many of them sense or see or pre-live the future before it occurs. That's why I'm saying to everybody, buy that book, Future Memory. So many near-death experiencers, adults and children, uh, as part of what they uh, experience, uh, is what I call future memory or pre-living the future before it occurs. I'm not talking about clairvoyance. I'm not talking about any of the clairs. I'm talking about people who live it, pre-live it, not just see it, actually live it, every part, live it before it occurs. And if you want to know how that occurs, again, get the book Future Memory. Now, let me warn you about these two books. Okay special ones that the voice told me to do. Future memory is not a book. It is a labyrinth. It is a real labyrinth. Every sentence, every paragraph, every page is part of the math I used to construct the labyrinth. It is a book labyrinth, not a land labyrinth. So it is a real labyrinth. You read through it like you would walk through a labyrinth. That is to say you can't jump around. Because if you do, you defeat the purpose of the labyrinth. You have to go straight through. And like a labyrinth, it will twist and turn on you. Um, so, so you have to stay, keep on the path. Um, the purpose of the book is to help you move up to the next highest level possible for you at that time in your development. So it works on your brain and your mind and your consciousness as you read it. That's the purpose of the book, Future Memory. Now, a manual for developing humans, we all need that right, right now. I mean, absolutely right now, right now, right now. Because <clears throat> the book has a fifth dimensional format. It has six sections. In every section, in every part of every section, you get the conscious subconscious, superconscious rendering at once. So you get it all at once. And that's the way the fifth dimension is. Uh, you get it all at once, intention rules. And um, we, we seem to forget that years ago uh, in history, you read your history about it, but years ago, mm -hmm. um, when people, people regarded hue, H-U, hue as a sound of God. That's the sound God makes, hue. So human was God, man, God, woman. You know, you've you got human, you've got 
whether they're male or female. So God, man, God, woman. So anybody that's a human is a godling. And they, they were very uh, focused on that. That was very true for hundreds of years. I don't know how many years. The idea of hue was the sound of God. So, I mean, how many of us are ever taught how to be who we are? Who we are is, uh, we can go to the Bible, and it says very clearly, you, you can go uh, other texts as well, other religions as well. And it says very clearly, um, who are you? It says very clearly, ye are gods. Ye are gods in the making. The near-death experience, kundalini breakthroughs, other types of spiritual transformations all take us to that same place where we come to realize that we are co-creators with the creator. That's who we are. We are co-creators with the creator. Well, how many, how many of us learned that in school? I didn't. I mean, you don't learn that in school. You don't learn to be who you are. And who you are is a co-creator with the creator, or as it says in the Bible, ye are gods in the making. So the whole purpose of a manual for developing humans is to help you be who you are. So it's full of all kinds of simple, easy, funny exercises or stories. It has thought form drawings in it um, that help you to realize that any part of your life, any part of being a human is uh, uh, part of your function as a co-creative being. Um, so, so it takes you through the whole thing in easy, easy ways. There's nothing hard about it. Uh, uh, to help, help you realize who you are and why you're here. And what it's all for. <laughs> What's it all about, Alfie? Well, what information to have. <laughs> <laughs> it's all there. It's all there. A manual for developing humans. So I did my job. I did what the voice, like none other, asked me to do. Still doing it. The book I'm writing now is more personal. Never written a personal book. Well, I, I've got to correct that and, and say... Uh, the first little book I ever wrote was I Died Three Times in 1977. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you love the title? <laughs> Very honestly. You know, I died three times in 1977. Uh, and you can still get it on, on Amazon.com, uh, The Complete Story. And uh, that's the first little book I ever wrote. And, um, you know, I, I, just 50 copies. 
they just sold them wherever, you know, gave them to different truck stops and they could sell them. And one of those books happened to, <laughs> happened to make it to Hartford, Connecticut in a bookstore. How it got there, nobody knows. <laughs> At the time when Kenneth Ring was in that bookstore and saw that book, and thought, oh, what an unusual title. <laughs> and, and traced me down by telephone. And it was Kenneth Ring who brought me into the full research community because I didn't know it existed. I'd never heard of Raymond Moody. Never heard, you know. I learned about the near-death experience from Elizabeth. Um, so that's how that happened, but anyway. Uh, after I wrote that little book, then all the other bo books were about the research I did. And I, I'm, I'm going to tell you something really dumb here. <laughs> really dumb. When I first started, started writing the books and getting my work out, I'd never heard of an abstract. I'd never heard of a, of a paper. Didn't know what those were. I mean, <laughs> dear Gary, my <laughs> idea of higher education was how high you could clear a corral fence when a bull was chasing you. <laughs> I mean, that's higher education. <laughs> so I had to learn what an abstract was, what a paper was, how do you write them, you know, what for, what for. And and so, you know, I started learning to do those. I've done a number of them now. But, I mean, I didn't know any of that. All I knew was that voice, what it told me to do, what I learned from Elizabeth, um, um, that training I had had in childhood in police stations, that's all I had. And it, that it all came together for you. That, that produced the work I've done. Not, I, I mean, to this day, none of my books are really sold that much. I wish they would. I wish more people would buy my books. Um, my money has come from my own pocket and my husband's pocket. Um, you know, I just still keep doing my work because I was told to do my work. Well, you've definitely made an impact because I've certainly have, have heard about you from more than one of my guests. <laughs> <laughs> so you're definitely popular in the community. Oh, uh, well, um, what can I say? <laughs> that was groundbreaking. You, you, you broke the ground, really. Yeah. Well, that's, that's my story. That is fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on today. And, and it was fabulous. It was an honor, really, to get to talk to you after hearing about you from some of my other guests. And to finally get to speak with you and do this interview is awesome. And, well, um, tell everybody that I produce a free monthly newsletter. Anybody can 
can get it. Uh, but but it's only for the curious. Uh-huh. Uh, and and if you're not curious, you won't be interested in my newsletter. But if you are, then you g- get on my website, PM, pmhatwater.com, uh, and go over to newsletter. And in the newsletter, you just sign up. There's an archive if you if you want to go through past issues. But um, you might be interested in that because um, I'm interested in life. Yeah. I'm interested in all kinds of things. And so if you're curious like me, <laughs> you'll love my book. <laughs> well, I, I know my listeners are curious because the name of the podcast is Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm sure my listeners are definitely curious people. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you. And um, have have a good day. You too. Good life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I will. (laughs) Many blessings. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.